Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner and I am your host. Um, in this podcast, we are going to learn a whole bunch of things about housing legislation and manufactured housing and how labor, government, and business all came together to initiate programs to get affordable housing to the public and at the same time integrate neighborhoods. Tall order by today's standards, but this is a time when people actually talk to each other, something we don't do today. Right, Troy? Troy, you're not talking today? Troy, come on. Troy, you just said we don't talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, but we're on the same side. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Today, um, we're going to do a uh, podcast that we did an interview with Dr. Kristen Sylvian. Uh, she was here at the Ruther Library as part of the Sam Fishman Travel Grant, conducting research for her book on Operation Breakthrough, which was a program started by Governor Romney of Michigan, who was then the Secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development during the first Nixon administration. Sylvian currently teaches at St. John's University, is the director of the public history program there. Before that, she was at Western Michigan University, and she received her doctorate in history from Carnegie Mellon University. So this podcast is going to be in two parts. We had a lot to talk about and a lot of things I had to learn and Troy needed to learn, and hopefully she did learn something. Oh, I learned many things. That's good. Now, this podcast, as I said, is in two parts. In today's episode, Dr. Sylvian tells us about the lead-up to this uh, Operation Breakthrough from back when the UAW assisted in the development of a piece of legislation that was pushed by the Truman administration all the way up to the 1960s with an organization called the Metropolitan Detroit Citizens Development Authority. Um, and this group, this authority, uh, was labor, business, and government really trying to build affordable housing for what you can say were the displaced African Americans living in Detroit after the urban renewal destroyed their neighborhoods. Uh, Sylvian talks about labor's role in various housing legislation from the UAW, AFL, and CIO doing amazing things um, to lead up all up to this point where Romney is putting through his program called Operation Breakthrough. Um, so why don't we just let Dr. Sylvian tell us all about it and um, when there was a time when people actually talked, when you were sitting on opposite sides of the aisle, you wanted to make things happen for the betterment of your community and of the nation as a whole. So why don't we get started on the purpose of your visit to the Walter P. Ruther Library? Uh, my interest in Ruther is a long-standing one, and my interest in the United Automobile Workers and, of course, in union history in general. And um, I guess when you're born in a place like Lowell, Massachusetts, and um, I like to think of myself as perhaps, unfortunately, I've always had a kind of ringside seat to deindustrialization. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in a landscape totally dominated by abandoned textile mills, and the mills had been closed of course for years right. before my childhood um, so as I said I had this interest in labor history working-class history um, before I started writing my dissertation and that officially is what brought me to the Ruth of the first time was while I was at Carnegie Mellon um, I kind of you know mined all of the papers and so forth in Pittsburgh but it became clear that the um, federal housing programs that I was 
interested in owed their existence in large part to the organizational efforts made by the United Automobile Workers Union and the CIO. And of course, um, at that time, they were rivals, the American Federation of Labor. Um, but both unions really worked very hard to secure all of the major pieces of housing legislation that working people have looked to from the 1930s up into the present. Labor has always played a leading role in that legislation, both in lobbying for its need as well as actually crafting the legislation. In the Ruther papers, you can see that bills were sent to Ruther, and he and staff members went through them line by line. And sometimes I know his writing now, I can see where he had suggestions. So he actually participated in the crafting of the legislation itself, certainly in the big landmark 49 bill, the Housing Act of 1949, which was that, you know, we tried from 45 when the war ended up until 49 to resume the public housing program and establish a kind of what they call omnibus housing bill. It took four years before Republican opposition to that law was overcome. And Ruther was in there the whole time, the UAW, the CIO's apparatus fighting for that housing bill. And that same housing bill not only resuscitated the low-income public housing construction program, which had been halted by the war, but also urban renewal. It was the beginnings of urban renewal, which, of course, working people have a tortured relationship with as well. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. But in the main, these were positive pieces of legislation that brought public attention and funding to our cities, which were in disgraceful shape, you know, all during the 1930s and the 1940s. Just American cities were deteriorating rapidly. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, I, I have such admiration for Luther, because uh, he was so insightful and, and understood, maybe perhaps intuitively, more so than intellectually, that there was always this kind of the yin and the yang of things, that, you know, industries rose and industries fell, and it was very hard to kind of separate those threads or those strands, because sometimes the ups and downs took place right on the heels of each other. Right. And that ability for him to get people together. You know, he worked with um, Walker Lee Sisler, who at the time of the program that I'm talking about in the late 1960s, he was the uh, his title chief executive officer, I believe, of Detroit Edison. And Sisler and Ruther were both the kind of co-leaders, excuse me, of this organization that was actually started before the uprising in 1966 called the Metropolitan Detroit Citizens Development Authority. I know it's a big mouthful, but it was a private entity that brought together folks from business, folks from labor, folks from city and Wayne County government, um, community activists, and they really worked hard to um, make those community organizations reflect the demographic changes that were taking place in the city. 
and um, put together this organization to lobby for fair housing. And that's kind of where George Romney, the governor, comes in because, of course, George Romney is governor of Michigan in 1966 at this time when this organization is created. And he is observing what Ruther and Sisler are doing in bringing together this, you know, labor, business, government, community activist organization that they're all going to work towards um, both equal opportunity employment, one side of the equation, and the other side for fair housing. Throughout his career as a governor, um, and I, my sense is, is that he began to understand this as an automobile executive, um, as president of American Motors. I mean, the automobile industry is sort of funny, and Romney himself, because he aided and abetted the deindustrialization of Detroit, right? He made decisions that sent production into the suburbs. He made decisions that automated the industry and cut the number of employees. Um, ultimately, his company will make decisions that will send production completely abroad. Uh, I don't know exactly when those decisions were made closely enough to say, you know, whether Romney himself made them, but he certainly made decisions that, that decentralized production and decision-making outside of the city. But Romney was sophisticated enough to realize that he, that those very decisions were undermining the city as a whole and that they weighed most heavily on the working people who, as I talked about a few moments ago, oftentimes become trapped in city neighborhoods or in those inner ring suburbs. They can't afford to leave. Um, they can't afford the transportation out to the new jobs or they lack the skills. They lack the education. And so that metropolitan Detroit Citizens Development Authority Authority was working, particularly though in that case, to focus on the housing parts of it. And part of that, of course, resulted in or its success in kind of gaining momentum. Two things, um, as you probably know, Ruther had suggested to the um, Robert Reaver, who, be, who was the first secretary of housing, of HUD, the housing um, cabinet, um, to have some kind of what they initially called demonstration cities program. So why not give some federal money to Detroit and let us work out ways to both create equal opportunity employment and housing, and we'll kind of use it as an incubator, we'll use it as a demonstration, we'll use it as a model to test different approaches and see if they might work in other similarly ailing cities. And ultimately, that demonstration cities concept became the basis of a federal law. And then ultimately, after all the protests and the race riots, um, it became known as model cities and was in fact a national program that persisted well into the Nixon administration. So it's interesting that model cities, like a number of other programs that Ruther was behind, actually outlived the Great Society. And uh, Nixon is very interesting in that, you know, despite his, um, you know, sort of uh, fall from <laughs> grace, it's interesting to see that he was a very liberal Republican in many respects. And as a result, 
felt the selection of George Romney as his HUD secretary makes sense in that regard that Nixon didn't come to office, my senses, with a very strong domestic agenda, but rather saw himself more as a foreign policy guy and was willing, at least in the first administration, to have the agenda largely shaped by uh, more liberal or moderate, I guess by today's standards, mm -hmm. those would be moderate Republicans like Romney, who were very steeped in New Deal and great society ideas. I mean, just about everything that Romney did came right out of the New Deal, came right out of the great society, and as I'll um, show this afternoon in the presentation that I'm making, came right out of Ruther. I mean, he just, you could say borrowed, <laughs> you could say stole, you could say appropriated, Ruther's ideas wholesale and just applied them on a national level for Operation Breakthrough. Right. So what was the relationship with, with Walter Ruther in Operation Breakthrough? Now, Romney considered him the most dangerous man in America or <laughs> Detroit, wherever you read that one. Um, it seemed like he had a lot of respect for him. Oh, he did. Huge. So how did he bring Ruther in to help with Operation Breakthrough? And what eventually happened to Operation Breakthrough? Okay. So it's a two-part. Yeah, those are great questions. Well, let's go back for a few minutes back to 66 and 67 before Breakthrough when that organization that I told you about a moment ago, that Metropolitan Detroit Citizens Development Authority, which again is a funny thing because most people, for most people, an authority is a public body. But in this case, this was a private authority. They just created their authority. They gave themselves their authority. Um, but the authority, beginning in 67 and 68, um, and again, after, after the rising, but they actually began before the uprising, started um, shopping around the market for manufactured housing. So they understood that um, in Detroit in particular, urban renewal had done such an enormous disservice to um, average Detroiters because so many people were displaced with so few places to go. And when you think about the highway building that took place in the city, and then don't discount the airports and other kinds of public building, when you put that all together, we have sizable numbers of people who are displaced. So people were being displaced from so-called slums, but all they were doing was sending them to someplace else that urban renewal or redevelopment hadn't reached yet. And so that need for housing, like now, as well as the federal budget ever shrinking, our parsimonious Congress always looking to how much this is all costing, you know, kind of sent policymakers, not just in Detroit, but in other cities, and Akron is one of the first of them, they start to think about, well, what if we just bought like this modular housing? And it's less expensive, and it can be erected quickly, and we can bring it right into the city, right into neighborhoods that are already predominantly black or might be mixed neighborhoods, and we can erect them, and there won't be these controversies that erupt every single time that a new public housing development is proposed. Everybody puts the wagon in a circle, right, and they fight, and they oppose, and so public housing developments all over America will constantly be delayed by this. 
So Ruther likes this idea, and he's not only convinced that this could be useful for Detroiters, but he's got bigger plans because he understands, and you know, this get kind of gets back to the war years. Um, you may recall that Ruther, as early as 41, had this idea that Detroit should become a center for manufactured housing, that we can use all of these idled war plants to build prefabricated housing. And all those UAW workers, why, they don't need to be idle. They don't need to leave the union. We'll just make them prefabricated housing workers. And so it'll help working people get better homes and provide jobs. So um, moving forward, so so when um, federal money makes um, makes it when federal money is available to buy this housing, Ruther and this local authority, as I said, they approach manufactured housing producers all around America, and they say like, we want you to come to Detroit and build a few models. They work with neighborhood organizations, and the people help choose the companies, and they will choose the models. They have the models open. People line up for hours to come and inspect them. They fill out their kind of, you know, feedback sheets. They feed this back to the company. They kind of tweak the designs. The idea is that each neighborhood should get to decide what kind of housing they need. And then the authority would help the neighborhood association get the money from the feds or from the state or from private uh, groups because, of course, there were large pots of money put together after the uprising to help Detroit and work on some of its key problems. And Ruther, as I said, demanded that these companies also provide equal opportunity employment. So you have to do job training. Don't just come and assemble this housing in our neighborhood. Let those neighborhood folks have a job. At least expose them to the industry. Like we realize that the, this is just a temporary thing, but that doesn't mean that they won't pick up some skill and that they might be able to use that to try to get other kinds of employment. And then what's most fascinating, and this is something that was a direct discovery that um, from the archives, right out of the Ruther papers that I don't think anybody in America, other than the people directly involved, know of, is that the authority seeded the creation of what I understand to be the only black-owned manufactured housing company in America. And it was called Lebon, L-E, capital B-O-N, Homes. And Lebon Walker was a um, Michigan State graduate who um, worked in the finance branch of General Motors. You know, he had, so he had worked in white collar job and he was interested in housing. And I don't know really much beyond that of how exactly um, Mr. Walker was recruited, <laughs> but ultimately the authority helped him uh, obtain loans and um, rent a facility. And um, they started manufacturing homes there in this facility. And um, Walker writes that he was completely overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed when they announced that there was going to be this black-owned 
manufactured housing company that was going to employ black people and that you could buy a house that had been manufactured by a black company by black workers, he was inundated with requests for assistance from all over the country. Wow. But unfortunately, I mean, this, this whole thing sort of falls apart. It fell apart for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, there were technological problems. You know, coming as, you know, um, even companies like National Homes that, as I said, survived World War II and are, and are making, and, and they're still in business today, producing up into the 60s, they all encountered technological and production problems. Because it's just like with the automobile companies, right? That, you know, when you turn a new model over and let's just say, you know, GM starts making a new model, it costs GM a lot of money, right, to, to, to get to the plant so that they can start producing those cars. And um, somebody in the GM office has figured out, well, we need to sell 10,000 of those cars before we start recouping our costs, and we need to sell you know, 30,000 of them before we start making money. Those numbers were even larger for the prefabricated housing business. And so it was very hard to get the volume going to justify the costs involved in setting up these plants and buying your materials. And if you don't have those orders coming in steadily, those um, those crews that you've just trained, what are you going to do with those guys? They're standing there at the factory going, well, well you know, we'll produce, but they don't have any orders. Right. So... You know, uh, developing these kind of incubator prefabricated housing businesses with such a little or limited capital stream just didn't work. And even big prefabricated housing companies stiffed the authority. So we actually see relatively little building that arose from those model housing developments. And um, I, for the best I can determine, there were 303 units built citywide in about eight to 10 different companies and clusters of these model manufactured housing developments. But this does involve Romney because Romney is governor and he's watching this the whole time and he's fascinated by this all and sees the potential because, again, he's an auto guy and he understands that if there was the capital stream, if we did get everybody technologically on the same page, this could actually work. And this could be huge for Detroit, huge for Michigan to make this the center of manufactured or modular housing construction for the whole country. He Failed um, Operation Breakthrough in May of '69, and within uh, I forget how many days, it's nine days, like three or seven days, days, four days, days, right? He's being booed when he shows up at the AFL uh, Trade Union Council meeting. Uh, when he tells the AFL, you know, things need to change, and you uh, guys, and they were mainly guys at the time, that was accurate. These uh, men, you know, you have your head stuck in the sand in two accounts. First, the building industry is changing every day technologically. You know, you guys can pretend this isn't happening, but the reality is the longer you try to fight the technological change and don't come up with a union response, the worse condition you're going to be. And then secondly, and more kind of personally for Romney, is that he understood quite well, particularly for Detroit, that when you look at the numbers, I mean, the AFL was absolutely appalling, the amount of 
um, growth in the apprentice program and how many people kind of made it into the apprentice program, then became journeymen, and then, of course, become the fully licensed, full vested member who can potentially earn the most in the union wage labor. So throughout the 60s, we have labor shortages in almost all of the skilled crafts. And then when we look at entrance of ethnic and racial minorities, and of course women into those areas, they, they come out even worse. So he takes them to task, and of course they don't want to hear that. But, you know, in the end, Romney kind of wins in the sense that the union realizes that this is an opportunity um, with breakthrough to try to begin to negotiate with some of the big producers of what we today call modular or manufactured homes. And so within a few months of Romney being booed, we had the, that those very same AFL Trade Union Council negotiating with a company out of New York called Sterling Homex. Did Nixon appreciate Operation Breakthrough thoroughly, or did he look at it cautiously? I, I, you know, Nixon was, as you know, really a guy who kind of was always hedging his bets and always trying to figure out, you know, what was going to benefit him the most. So I think that he was interested in breakthrough. Many people were, because I think that most Americans can kind of readily grasp the concept, well, I understand how the car industry works. Like we all have our individual tastes and needs and makes and models that we like. And while they're not customized to us, everybody kind of finds a model and a make that they like. And why can't we do that for housing? You know, so I think that a lot of people saw like, well, this could work. You know, there could be a General Motors for housing someday. And some people get the, you know, the, the expensive model and other people drive the economy model. And we could have that for housing. So I think that Nixon, understood that and was interested in the concept, um, but he didn't want to get bogged down by the details. And then ultimately, of course, you know, because of all of these housing programs are all taking place at a time we're starting with the passage of the federal, excuse me, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. I mean, I picture our nation like building an infrastructure that part of that infrastructure is for equal opportunity employment and then part of the infrastructure is for fair housing. And Nixon, I think, like Romney, was taken back in his career when he discovered the extent of American opposition to integration. I think he was genuinely shocked. I don't think Romney was as shocked because my sense is, is that he was more on the ground and um, got more of a sense of just how much opposition there would be to integration. That was an interview with Dr. Sylvian. Um, she got a Fishman grant, which provides up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to use archival records related to the American labor movement. The award is named after Sam Fishman, a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader, and we give out about five to six of these awards per year. So if you're interested, please visit our website, www.ruther.wayne.edu. Okay, our next podcast, Dr. Sylvian will be talking more about Operation Breakthrough and what happened with Operation Breakthrough. Why don't we have heard about Operation Breakthrough? And how it all went to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it did go to the this crap is up. why we can't have nice things. <laughs> People break things. <laughs> well, that's a hint of what's going to happen next time. 
See you then. Say goodbye, Troy. Goodbye, Troy. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Um, first, though, how do you pronounce her last name? It's easy to say Sylvian. That's what I thought. Yes. Sylvian. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, ready? We're recording? Okay. Uh, I'm just going to kind of do basic stuff so we know what this is. This is Dan Galadner, Walter P. Ruther Library with Dr. Kristen Sylvan. Sylvian. Sylvian. Thank you. Sylvian. Sylvian.